Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, we're really excited uh, that this week we have a couple of guests, uh, and so we're going to tell you about them. This week we're talking about one of the most pressing issues of the day, trans rights. And to do that, we're joined by the co-host of the podcast, Cancel Me Daddy. I just want to pause for a second. That is one of the best names of a podcast I've ever, like when when our producers told me that was the name of the podcast, I was like, that is so great. Caitlin's brilliant. Uh, so yeah. Oh my God. So I'm going to say it again. Cancel Me Daddy is the name of the podcast, and it's a podcast that demystifies the panic around cancel culture. So here with us is Oliver Ash, one of the founding members of the Trans Journalist Association and senior producer of the podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, and their co-host, Caitlin Burns, who has covered politics, LGBTQ issues, and reproductive health policy for the likes of Vox and MSNBC. Oliver and Caitlin, welcome to Majority 54. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. So with that, usually Robbie starts us out on the news of the week. So let's do that. Well, Caitlin, uh, I would love for you to give us an overview of what's happening in Texas. We've been getting a lot of questions from our audience. Yeah, so uh, Texas, uh, over the past couple of weeks, the governor of the state has ordered the Department of Family and Child Services, Protective Services to treat gender-affirming care as child abuse. And that's sort of the big thing that we're all focusing on and why we're having this discussion today. But Texas has sort of been the epicenter of the American anti-trans movement for quite a number of years. Um, it started back in 2015 after the Obergefell Supreme Court ruling. Um, actually, there was a referendum on a Houston ordinance that was like a non-discrimination ordinance. And the referendum was about its repeal. And that was the first time you saw like the no men in women's bathrooms slogan, right? So you think of bathroom bills, you think North Carolina, but actually it started in Texas. And then you you jump ahead and Texas tried and failed to pass a number of anti-trans laws, bathroom bills, school bathroom bills, a bunch of other things. There was this guy, Jeffrey Younger, who's currently running for the Texas House as a Republican, um, who has a trans daughter, who I think is nine years old now. Um, but a couple of years ago, the child was seven. And there was this ugly divorce case and a custody battle over, um, you know, you had this mom who was affirming their trans child's identity, and you had the father who absolutely refused to support it. So what happened was, is the father sort of did the right-wing media tour of, um, you know, the outrage tour and sort of built the name for himself. And now he's running for, for uh, office. Good God. Um, well, hold on. I just yeah. want to stop. So yeah. like, in addition to having to go through the difficult emotional journey that this child was already on, it's been elevated at that point to like a mm -hmm. statewide debate. Yeah. I mean, this is like, um, like Terry Schiavo, but like, yes, but I mean, like, Very which, so. you know, like, so taking that and turning that into like the face of, I mean, that's terrible. I just want to stop. Yeah. Like, that's a horrible thing. What a <laughs> terrible dad. So um, if you want to do some Googling, I wrote about this for Vox in 2019, very much in depth. I looked at the court records that are public and whatnot and to try to unpack what's going on here. Uh, but what you had at the time was you had all these Texas politicians. You had Governor Abbott, you had Ken Paxton, you had Ted Cruz, you had a bunch of state legislators going, children shouldn't be allowed to transition in our state, right? Like they weren't saying it like that. They used their own rhetoric, but like I'm just sort of translating it into sort of lefty liberal talk. And since 2019, you've started to see states introduce these bills that ban gender affirming care for trans minors, right? It's really adolescents. 
it's funny, there's a, there's a language gap on this where the Republicans will be like, they're mutilating children's genitals. That doesn't actually happen. Uh, so when I write, I always say teenagers or adolescents because it's older minors that are looking at medical care. And there's a lot of scaremongering around this, which we can get into later. We have Republicans running around saying, oh no, we're just protecting children's genitals. And it's like, you guys are intentionally scaremongering about something that does not happen. Can we pause for a second? And because there's a lot of people listening who are probably unfamiliar with what you mean when you say gender affirming care. Yeah. And I would count like if someone asked me to explain what that is, I would do a poor job. So, <laughs> so uh, how, how, yeah. wh- how should we explain what that term means? So when we're talking about gender affirming care, so the process is nothing uh, medically happens with any child until puberty starts. So um, if you think about prepubescent children and the difference between boys and girls, their bodies are really the same, let's be honest, right, until puberty starts. There's no secondary sex characteristics because they're kids, like this is how biology works. So what ends up happening is if you're a kid and you realize that you're trans and you haven't yet hit puberty, you go through what's called a social transition, which is they change your clothes, they use a new name, they might use different pronouns. It's purely cosmetic. You might grow your hair out or cut your hair short. Like it's just cosmetic stuff. There's literally nothing permanent about it. Um, But once you start hitting puberty, that's when you can start to see an increase in gender dysphoria. And plenty of studies have shown this um, happens where uh, gender dysphoria is like a discomfort between a mismatch between the sort of gender that you know yourself to be and what you were born with, right? So, um, which makes sense because puberty, you know, exasperates those changes. And so uh, the first step is puberty blockers. And that is designed purely to put a pause on puberty because you have, you know, like a 12-year-old kid, they're not old enough to make permanent decisions about their body really. And like, you're just putting a pause on it, right? So that they can mature a little bit and make sure that this is exactly what they want. They could see how their peers are developing um, and things like that. So the first step is puberty blockers. And then usually a couple of years later, when they're more mature, they make a decision, okay, do I want to go through like my natural uh, puberty or do I, would I rather go through, you know, the opposite sex? And that's when you start talking about more permanent. There's some dispute over how permanent everything is. <laughs> Uh, but a more permanent process uh, of developing their body. But you're talking about like 14, 15 year olds at that point. So, um, and at no point are actual genitals being operated on by surgeons um, until 18 in the United States. It's just unheard of. Caitlin, that's notable. So explain that one more time, because I think that is news to me. Because when you read these stories and certainly what what the the right wing is saying, Mm -hmm. they seem to be implying different. So so underline that for us, that point. Yeah. So genital surgeries, you know, so like bottom surgeries, as they're called in the queer community or like vaginoplasties or whatnot. I've never heard of it happening in the United States to somebody under 18. And I cover this for a living. Like, I think I would know if I, it, like, under 18 in the United States, there are cases in Europe where I've heard of like 16 year olds getting it, but that's not the United States. Well, let, let's be honest if it had happened in the United States, the right wing would have made sure we knew. We would know about um, it, right? So there is a little bit of confusion because trans boys w- will sometimes be able to get top surgery before 18. So there are cases, and it's actually not that uncommon, where top surgery might be performed below the age of 18, but not bottom, right? So you're not affecting the fertility, which is always what the panic is about. So I think that conservatives use those cases of top surgery to sort of bend the truth into something that people can be outraged over. Um, And I just want to add one quick point. Each of these bills, including in the state of Texas, has a specific carve out for non-medical genital surgeries on intersex children, including newborns. So intersex children are like those that are born with parts of both sexes. 
And sometimes you medically have to do a surgery in order for like urine to be able to pass through the body and things like that. But there are other cases where it's like the doctor says the penis is too small, so they make a vagina. Those, curiously, are still allowed in the state of Texas. It's something that trans activists have been trying to get banned because they're literal newborns. Um, Certainly intersex activists are all over that. The governor of Texas doesn't seem to care about that. He's carved out an exception for this, like ramming kids into the gender binary as newborns evidently is fine for him, but trans kids are a step too far. It's a huge contradiction. And And I might be getting too in the weeds. No, no. I find that really interesting. I did not, (laughs) I didn't know that Jason. I don't know if you did, but so, so, so you're saying that trans activists or at least some trans activists Mm -hmm. are advocating that they ban those surgeries. Yeah. For a very long time. So got it. Okay. Just so I understand. So like Mm -hmm. is the advocacy, they ban those surgeries and then like the idea being at some point you allow the child to make a choice. We're all about letting the child, you know, grow up to make the choice in all cases, whether it's intersex or trans kids. Sure. So like uh, we have a pretty consistent position, I feel like. Well, I can see your point. I mean, your point is like, well, look, this child, you don't know what this child's gender identity is going to be. I mean, you're flipping a coin and 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 making it a 50% chance that you're going to put a person in a, a gender dysphoria uh, position, right? Which is obviously a much, it's the average person is not born with a 50% chance of, of that. And, <laughs> right. and so I, I can see that. I can see that point. Okay. All right. Well, that, that, I learned a new thing. Okay. Like let's get back to Texas just really quickly on that. So where do things stand right now? And you know, what, what are the implications for families in Texas right now? And is there any hope that this law can be challenged either electorally or uh, legally? So there is currently a state lawsuit, and I'll spare the specifics of the case. It's actually a a Child Protective Services employee that brought the lawsuit. It's a person who has a trans child. They went to their supervisor saying, hey, how will this directive affect me? And they suspended her. Um, and actually launched an investigation into their own employee the next day, which is sort of terrifying when you step back and think about, okay, they're doing this to their own. What are they going to do to people who they don't know? But this person sued along with the ACLU of Texas and a psychologist in the state who I actually interviewed for The Guardian a couple weeks ago. They initially won an injunction that stopped the investigation just into that family And then last Friday, they had a wider hearing and uh, a judge issued an injunction stopping all investigations. However, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's running for re-election, stepped in and said, okay, we are appealing this. And while our appeal is pending, we're going to continue to do the investigations. And there's sort of confusion about where this all stands now because Uh, Several reporters have reached out now to the Department of of Family and Child Protective Services to say, hey, what's the status of this? And they say, we are following the law. I'm sure you're aware of our legal, the legal battle over this or whatever, right? Um, So they're not really answering the question of whether they're still conducting these investigations. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have a solid answer for you. Oliver, can you give us a sense of where else these bills are cropping up and what's behind it? Yeah, so there are a variety of different kinds of legislation spreading throughout the country right now, and that's a coordinated effort by the right wing. Um, There's a group called Promise to America's Children, which is a coalition of right wing groups that is spreading this all across the country. And so this is not a grassroots effort. This is not a local effort. This is something that is coming from at the top of the Republican Party. This is not something that naturally people are concerned about. This is a very well-funded, moneyed effort. uh, And that money has been used to shape the conversation and make sure that these bills are introduced all across the country. And so we have anti-sports legislation that is targeting uh, trans girls uh, playing sports and rooted in anti-Blackness. We have medical bills that are trying to keep youth from receiving life-saving, gender-affirming care. And what we're seeing in Texas with the um, defining gender-affirming care as abuse is a new thread to that, which is very alarming and seeks to take children away from their parents who are supporting them. And then we have the bathroom bills, which have not been 
what what we saw in 2016, those efforts weren't as successful, right? There was a lot of pushback. And so what the Republican Party did, what these money efforts did was find another way to attack trans people that would resonate with more moderate voters, that would resonate with, you know, more uh, moderate conservative voters. And so what we're seeing is a really targeted effort. Okay, so I want to unpack a couple of things you said. I, one of them, I think I I think I understand. The other, I I don't as well, and I and I want your help. So when you say life saving, gender affirming care, I'm assuming that what you mean is is that the uh, rate of suicide among trans youth who can't receive that care is high, and therefore gender affirming care saves yes, lives. That that's absolutely what I'm me. saying. Okay, okay, and that makes that makes sense to me. You also said that. A lot of these bills with regard to sports are rooted in anti-blackness. And I would love to hear more about that. I'm sure that that's right, because that sounds like the yeah. right. <laughs> Just don't know the specific. Yeah, so I'm not like the best person to speak about this. I'm white, right? Um, and, and this is not my like super area of expertise, but I can talk about it some. So we've seen historically, right, in... Um, the, the Olympics, right? Or when we're talking about like high level national sports, when we're talking about um, uh, Castor Semenya, right? We're seeing like often black women are targeted for their hormone levels um, because the norms that we have around sports are based on what white women look like, right? The, the fold onto this is that like when we're looking at where the push around anti-trans sports legislation came from, it came because like white parents were outraged that two black trans women were competing in Connecticut. And then you were saying that they're now looking for more ways uh, in their legislation that they're proposing to target more moderate voters. Here's my assumption based on what you all have taught us so far about this. Correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of this, it sounds like it started in Texas as a way to, and I have some familiarity with this being in a, in a red state, as a way where Republicans were distinguishing themselves from other Republicans to win primaries, uh, right? Like, it sounds like you were saying the initial guy got out and really made a name for himself on the right. And then, you know, and I read somewhere, I think, Caitlin, where you had said that uh, Abbott doing this has a lot to do with with Abbott having a right wing opponent in the primary. That makes sense to me. But also that they that the party itself would then from the very top say, hey, you know, some of the stuff we've used in the past as a wedge issue, uh, for instance, same sex marriage seems to have gotten to the point where people really don't agree with us. We've got to find a new thing to drive a wedge to to pick off these suburban voters. Is that is that sort of the evolution of this? Yeah, I mean, if you think about all the organizations that used to be devoted uh, devoted to fighting against marriage equality, you know, back in the day, they all were raising millions of dollars, just like the pro LGBT groups were. And once, you know, marriage equality became the law of the land through the Supreme Court, they needed something else to focus on in order to like, to justify their own existence, continued existence, right. And the easiest thing was to take trans issues and try to wedge it in. The difference between, I think, now and, and previously is they've never really been successful with trans people. Like, if you look at North Carolina, they passed a bathroom bill. And then two years later, their governor, like, lost in the 2016 election cycle, which was, like, so pro-over-the-top Republican that it was pretty clear that something else was going on, right? So you haven't seen candidates actually find success by going the sort of transphobic route before. Um, and I and I think that is terrifyingly beginning to change. And I think the sports issue in particular is one that really resonates with swing voters. I think that for a lot of parents who have, you know, have young kids, they're like, oh yeah, John, you know, little Johnny's gonna get a scholarship and we won't have to pay for college. And then when that's all of a sudden gets threatened by the other, quote unquote, you have a lot more people caring than just like, oh, you know, Johnny down the street wants to look like all the other boys is like a different self, right? It's, it, it they feel like it affects them now, right? Like that's the difference. It's like before it's like, you know, Americans were like, yeah, I, I actually don't care what bathroom people use and it doesn't and and now so you're saying that they've just been searching for a way to make people recoil i think of all the issues that we're talking about today this one i think is uh the one that i think the right feels most 
optimistic about in terms of their like in their quiver of sort of political wedge issues on on trans issues and i and i went and i tried to con- look look at the polling data on this to say like is my suspicion here correct and there was this poll from uh the fall of 2021 it was september from yougov and 54% of americans believe that trans women should not be able to participate in women's sporting events uh and i looked at a few other polls that seem to be in and around that area and i know that these things are totally dependent on how you ask the question but needless to say there's like a sizable percentage of americans who are you know i think open season for republicans on this issue um a question i have for you is we talked about like sort of some of the racism that that uh, abounds this issue is there like a good faith discussion and disagreement on this issue or or is it basically somebody like the many people in my life who probably are in that 54% other than just telling them they're wrong like like what's the like how do we talk to people about this in a way and and is it like is there actually a good faith disagreement on this So it's admittedly a, a really difficult conversation to have because you're running into a lot of people's preconceived notions about sex and gender that you have to overcome all at once, right? And one of those things is, you know, generally people believe that men are physically superior to women. And that's the most basic assumption at play here, right? So if you think that trans women are still men or retain some part of maleness, uh, you're going to have a hard time believing that they won't just dominate at every sport. The thing that I would say is, the frustrating bit, and I've covered this almost as in-depth as anybody in the world has. <laughs> I'd say like Katie Barnes at ESPN has probably done more work on this than I have and maybe two or three others. But the, the part I find frustrating is that again and again and again, the data that is used to justify excluding trans women from women's sports just compares cisgender men with cisgender women. So if they'll take like track records and they'll say, well, men are, you know, 15% faster than women. Of course, the trans women shouldn't be allowed to compete. And all I've ever asked for is to compare data from trans women with cisgender women. That's all I've ever asked for. If that data tells you that trans women have some permanent, you know, unobtainable advantage, go ahead with your bans. But I don't think we've ever had that data in any sort of quality. Like there have been studies that have like measured the strength with which you can extend your leg, right? Like your quad strength, they've measured just quad strength and they're saying, oh, trans women are stronger, X, Y, Z, or they've done like trans women in the military with one particular set of exercises and found that they performed better. And it's like, well, that's not really how sports work because there's so many other motions, right? So one thing that I always come back to is like, look, trans women have been allowed to compete as women in the Olympics in some form or the other for 20 years now. And there's been exactly two Olympians who are trans women competing against women. One of them uh, did not compete and the other one finished last in their event. Hmm, so I, I didn't know if that. You, yeah, if you're going to like look at, if you're going to make the claim that trans women are dominant, you should be seeing more Olympians than this, I would say. Out of the tens of thousands of Olympians that there have been since the year 2000, uh, excuse me for not knowing this off the top of my head, but I think it was 2002 that they were first allowed to compete against women provided that they had surgery. Um, and then it was loosened later to, they lifted the surgery requirement at a hormone treatment requirement. Where is this dominance? You have these like fringe cases of people, like you have, uh, Leah Thomas is the one that, that everybody's paying attention to now. She's a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania and she's dominated the Ivy League. She does not necessarily have the fastest time. I was looking at the qualifying sheet for the NCAA championship. She doesn't, she doesn't have the fastest time in each of her events at the NCAA, but she's dominated the Ivy league, but also the Ivy league is not like the best swimming league in the country. (laughs) No. Um, So like, and I think she has a good chance of winning the national championship, Uh, but you see these misleading statistics, like somebody will throw out that, oh, she was ranked 538th, you know, when she was competing against men. And now she's first among women. Well, that's 538th in her worst event before she transitioned 
when she was a freshman, right? So like there's all these caveats that you have to throw in there. And if you look at her best event, she finished second, losing only to an All-American her freshman year, which is her last year competing against men. So like she was going to go on to have a very promising career as a male swimmer if she had never transitioned. And her times have gotten slower since then because of her hormone treatment. Here's something that I've learned recently from my wife about meditation. It's that you can't tell yourself like you have to have the perfect environment for it. You just got to say like, you know, I'd like to meditate right now. And then you got to do it. And as an example, last night I was doing dishes. Diana was laying on the couch. We just put the kids to bed and it was kind of a stressful, like putting the kids to bed evening. And she was like, Hey, I'm going to meditate. Is that going to distract you? And I was like, well, no. She's like, why don't you put in some AirPods for 10 minutes and do the dishes and listen to a, a podcast? And I was like, great. So I did. And then she meditated and then she felt much better. Headspace is perfect for that because it's like you just pop in your headphones and you just can meditate and get back on, on an even keel if you need to. Yeah, Jason, I never thought I'd be able to get into the habit of meditation until I started Headspace. And what I really love about it is they're scientifically proven to help manage your feelings and your mental health. Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. So however you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com M54 and get one month for free of their entire mindfulness library. It's a huge and amazing library. This is the best Headspace offer available. Go to headspace.com M54 today. Headspace space.com slash m54 i started taking uh, athletic greens because uh, i was interested in having more energy and you know getting all of these nutrients but you know we've talked about this a lot of times ravi one of the side benefits of this that i don't think i've i've ever mentioned is that unlike taking a multivitamin because you take this as a drink it actually gets you to hydrate more. So it's just one more reason why AG1 is a, is a great choice. For less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health. And Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews and is recommended by professional athletes all across the spectrum. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. Like I said, good for hydration, but that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You know, you alluded to having covered this more than anybody else. So question for both of you, just to shift away from this for a second, you know, what's it like as trans journalists who are asked to cover these issues all the time. In particular, like what are the most frustrating misperceptions, misunderstandings that you encounter? And Oliver, let's start with you. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot to, to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, this could take a minute, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so last year I reported on the Anti-Trans Hate Machine podcast with Amara Jones and Translash Media, and it's really radically shifted how I understand and see this issue. And I think the most frustrating thing for me right now is how how so much of it lacks context for the larger conversation. And we really need to be looking at where this ideology, where these bills are coming from and what's actually driving them to talk about them. Because it's important to talk about how the messaging we're getting about sports, there's a lot of misinformation. But if we're just correcting that misinformation and responding to it, instead of reframing the conversation that we're having, we're going to be continuing to be fighting it in this way. And so when you look at the ideology that's behind this, it's actually an effort to build like God's kingdom on earth. Like this is it's anti-democratic. You have moneyed interests, right? Like the DeVos family, the National Christian Foundation, all of these huge funders that are funneling money all across the conservative movements to places like the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, Family Research Council, all of these big conservative organizations, their interest and in what they're funding is to build God's kingdom on earth, 
and this concept is called dominionism. And you have, um, if you go to like the conservative conferences, there will be panels on dominionism. And the idea is to control like the seven pillars of society, right? Which is, I'm not going to name them all, but government, business, education, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have folks who are intentionally driving these conversations that do not want a secular democracy, do not want a democracy at all, just want God's kingdom on earth. And actually, these folks 40 years ago got together with uh, conservative business interests to form the Council for National Policy, which for 40 years is a group of the most powerful conservative leaders who have been coming together to figure out how they can maintain power as our culture becomes more progressive, right? So to undermine democracy, to undermine the will of the voters and the people. We need to be talking about how all of what's going on with trans rights right now is part of the larger push to undermine democracy. And we're not talking about that at all. Yeah, just adding on to that, I get really frustrated because I'm, you know, I'm a freelance writer. I am a columnist for MSNBC, and thankfully they let me write about other things besides trans rights. But overwhelmingly, my experience as a trans journalist is more like a firefighter than a journalist. And it's like, Whenever something bad happens to trans people, I get 80 gazillion requests from editors to work for them, which like, first of all, it's really weird, by the way, to benefit financially when your community keeps getting attacked. So I feel weird about that. But like, I also don't think that there's enough stories about like, there's not enough good trans stories out there. There's (laughs) like like, none. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are some, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. Um, like I, my running joke with editors is like, well, you don't call me for good news. (laughs) And I actually burned out, you know, after I left Vox last year, early last year, I had a huge burnout last year. It was just totally unproductive for me, even as hundreds of, of anti-trans bills were passed and, or not passed, but introduced in state legislatures, just like they are this year. Just personally, I would like to see just more, cool trans stories like let me interview some rad trans folks who are doing amazing things because I think that will help just as much as like calling out the lies of you know the right when it comes to trans issues just in normalizing trans people to a bigger audience because like you know people look at me and they're like oh well you you know the only thing interesting about you is that you're trans and that's not true like I've done a whole bunch of other things you know I've reported on Capitol Hill I've reported on abortion policy which I think is much more closely tied to the trans issues than almost anybody on either side is willing to admit you're a cancel culture expert Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, by the way. You know, we love to talk about cancel culture on this podcast. And I noticed that your show is not about trans issues alone, but it's about the larger debate about cancel culture. So, you know, what an enduring debate that is happening right now. And and certainly I, I would say I'm having a little bit with our audience is like whether there is such a thing as cancel culture. And I, I'm going to I'm just going to give you my theory, like where I come out on this. And I suspect there'll be some area for some good faith discussion on this is that I think that cancel culture, as it's being described, is in excess of an important conversation. And so I actually do think that there's an important conversation about people who need to be held accountable for things that they do. I think that there are certain cases where the consequences have gone too far and or where we've been punishing people in the public square or through employment and other things for things that they shouldn't be or it's disproportionate. And then I also believe that the right has grabbed onto this larger debate and in very bad faith is deploying it for their own aims, most notably today with Vladimir Putin saying he's being canceled by the West. That happened Uh, today? He said that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's where I am, where I would say I depart from some of our audience because they send me some thoughtful messages on this, is that they're like, who's getting canceled? They always ask me, like, who's getting canceled that doesn't deserve it or whatever? And we can get into that. But that's that's the question I often get. So I'd just be interested. I'm just going to throw that out there because uh, this is, I think, something that our audience is really interested in based on the feedback I get constantly on this question. So disappointingly, I think we're pretty close in our positions on this. That I mean, is disappointing. Take that audience. <laughs> take, take that DMers. I love our I mean, DMers. I'm not mad at them. I like the feedback. Yeah. Our bread and butter on the show is like making fun of the right when they panic about whoever. Like our last show is literally about 
right-wing idiots saying Putin is getting canceled or the invasion of Ukraine happened because the West embraces progressive values like transgenderism. So like our bread and butter is making fun of those people, but we also have really thoughtful discussions about the cases that you don't necessarily hear about in the pages of the Atlantic, right? One of the the episodes that I always go back to is we talked with um, Emily St. James at Vox who wrote a really amazing piece about this trans woman named Isabel Fall. And one thing I will say is we're not a trans podcast, but trans issues come up a lot because we are both trans and that is the ones that we see the world through, right? So that's how I sort of explain that distinction. But Isabel Fall wrote a story a couple of years ago for a literary magazine, I think it was a sci-fi magazine, where she wrote about how she sexually identifies as an attack helicopter, which of course is a right-wing meme, but it was actually a really thoughtful sort of essay that critiques like the military industrial complex and how neoliberalism will sort of pinkwash what they're doing. Like, you know, the meme where you have you know, Republicans, and it's a military plane, and they're dropping bombs. And then it says Democrats, and it's the same military plane, but there's a pride flag on it. And the bombs are like colored like the trans pride flag. And it's like the same thing, right? It was sort of skewering that neoliberal parallel. Can I just ask you a quick uh, vocabulary question? Uh, You use the term called pinkwash. Uh, Do you mind just explaining what that means? Um, That's like, um, that's like the, the Raytheon pride (laughs) <laughs> the pride floats like oh i see, like, i see what yeah, you're like, saying oh, okay. <laughs> weapons manufacturers who like make a sh- big show about how they support lgbt and that makes them good but actually they're like selling bombs that bomb the houses of brown kids in the middle east like, it's like a cousin of like the woke corporate critique which is that corporations are it's like, like it's like putting being, yeah. putting yeah. end racism in the end zone and then not yeah. encouraging anybody to employ colin kaepernick it's like Disney making a huge deal about being LGBT allies and producing LGBT stories and then turning around and giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to the legislators in Florida who passed the Don't Say Gay bill. It's like the same thing. They pinkwash themselves by saying, oh, we're these huge allies, but their actions don't really say they are. And, right? and so, really all they did to be an ally is they're like, well, we'll produce content that people will pay for. That's no problem. Yeah, and it's like that one guy in Endgame who like mentioned his boyfriend for half a second that they just cut in China. Like, anyway, so the essay was, I thought, really well done, but the backlash was like completely over the top and hostile. Isabel Fall basically had her life ruined. She was like a newly out trans woman who like was barely out of the closet, like just taking her first steps. And the overwhelming amount of hate that is like, she became Twitter's main character and she didn't even have a Twitter account that we know of. People assumed that she was made up like some character of like a neo-Nazi on 4chan that was, and it was based on the title basically alone, but she ended up detransitioning because of the backlash and hasn't made an attempt at transitioning. Like her life got literally ruined by the internet backlash to this piece. So I have a hard time saying that cancel culture isn't real because I see cases like that and I'm like, this woman's whole ass life got canceled. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And here's Caitlin. Here's what somebody will say to that. This is what they say to me when I bring up these cases. They'll be like, nobody forced this person to do X or Y. I'm like, but that's like, that's easy to say. Like when you're not facing the pressures of public opinion and ridicule and in some cases like, you know, self-censorship or self you know, like delivering consequences yourself that you're almost reflexive and in a situation like that, you know? But like, what writer isn't going to turn down the chance to at your first byline? Like, if I had had that kind of response to my first byline, I also would have gone into the closet. But instead, I went on, you know, it was better received and I went on to become like the first openly trans Capitol reporter in U.S. history like well count me in favor of actually canceling Putin by the way I mean I mean like I just think <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if we're gonna cancel somebody it should be you know a war criminal who yeah. invades a democracy well and there's a huge difference between Vladimir Putin and Isabel Falk I, I right. would agree a like huge... this random person who like wrote this a story this is what gets the proportionality versus, like, right uh, you exactly. know exactly yeah, yeah. Well, Jason, I'm holding in my hands an Amsterdam rich and smooth dark chocolate walnut caramel coffee. This is some of the best coffee I've ever had, and I would have never discovered it before because I'm super basic about the way I shop for coffee, but I've upped my game recently. Okay, so Ravi, do tell us, how did you up your game? 
Well, our latest sponsor, Trade Coffee, they make it easy for you to find the best coffee out there. They have this amazing quiz that you take, and it says, you know, how do you take your coffee? Now, I have to say, I'm I'm not that adventurous with my coffee, uh, but even though I answered the question super basic that they gave me, this is still like some of the most interesting coffee I've ever had, uh, which goes to tell you how boring I am about my preferences. Whether you're a coffee nerd or just want a better daily cup, Trade's Real Coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing method. For our listeners, right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com M54. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash M54 and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash M54 for $20 off your first three bags. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And relationships take work. A lot of us are willing to drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset, so invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Majority54 listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com M54. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash m54 uh grace is grace is appearing which is the uh <laughs> it's the podcast equivalent of when your kindergarten t-shirt turns the light out <laughs> i'm so sorry i just want to be very mindful of time here but a question i just genuinely have that i would love to get either of your perspectives on and that caitlin you remind me of this when you brought up the connection between the trans movement and the abortion movement is that the right did an incredible job with trap laws of targeting abortion providers because they never wanted to punish women because that would look bad. But I feel as if the attack on trans youth and parents of trans kids is almost the exact opposite, where you're going after children just feels like such a weird tactical move to me. And I would just love, that's something that I would love to know. I think that's a great question. It's been, so the answer is, is they have sort of taken both approaches because Texas is not the first state to take official action on this. Actually, Arkansas last year passed a ban on providing gender-affirming care. And I believe, again, please don't quote me and Google this before you spread it elsewhere. I believe that bill targets the providers of the care and not necessarily the parents. There's criminal charges for the providers, which is very similar to how traditionally abortion access has been attacked but what you see in Texas is different from that, but also has a, a little bit of a root in the anti-abortion movement. So Texas has instead decided they're attacking families directly, obviously with Child Protective Services. They have the right, if they find that there's abuse happening, to remove the child completely from the home, which is unprecedented in both movements, you know, abortion and anti-trans but one thing in Texas is that any random person can report somebody to Child Protective Services for uh, alleging child abuse if they're giving children this kind of care. And that is very similar to the bounty law that they passed um, against uh, abortion, where random people can sue providers now who provide abortions to Texas women so not quite exactly the same thing, but they are now in Texas, they are empowering the conservative populace to take action. And in a roundabout way, this actually really empowers right-wing media because any reporter that goes out there and finds somebody who provided an abortion or a family who provided care to these kids can now go viral and ruin these people's lives. So to bring it full circle... <laughs> These Texas laws are the ultimate form of cancel culture, where you're empowering just random people out in the world to literally just go in and use the power of the state to ruin lives. 
Yeah, well done. Like perfect landing of that point. <laughs> okay, Grace, this is my last question. And Robbie, you may have one too, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about the misinformation out there and the artificial debates that are being created along these wedge issues. What I'm curious about is, and the answer to this may very well be no, whether or not there are some policies, some changes that need to be made and debates worth having about how to you know, assimilate folks who are going through transition or who have transitioned into our communities and that are worth like that are, are like good faith debates that could be had good faith you know disagreements that need to be worked out that aren't getting any airtime because they don't scare people and they don't move voters and that kind of thing so i'm just curious and and here's before i finish this rambling question what i'm envisioning in my mind is like our listeners are sitting around a dinner table with a family member and somebody brings up one of these wedge issue distraction debates that we've talked about and you know, they want to provide some of the answers that you've already given in this episode, but then pivot and say so that they don't seem like they're just shaming the person for having the view or trying to alienate them. So they say, you know, but here's the thing, like, there are some things that we actually do need to work out as a culture. Here's one of them. Is there anything like that? Uh, The most um, diplomatic way I can put this is y'all need to leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. When I talk to conservatives and i have a brother who's conservative and we no longer speak so i don't like i i've been in that situation and it didn't work out for me so maybe i'm not the best source on this but i always thought that there was a libertarian case for trans rights where it's like this is none of the government's business like how parents are raising kids like isn't this the whole you know critical race theory panic where parents are coming in saying the government can't tell us how to raise our children And yet, on the other hand, conservatives are coming in and saying, this is how you must raise your children to parents that affirm their kids. Like, I think that for the most part, trans people just want to be left alone. We don't want to be the headlines anymore. We never wanted to be headlines in the first place. It's like, yeah, we're different. You might think that we're weird, but like, Jesus Christ, leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> I don't know if you swear on your show, but you can bleep that out if you want we to. Certainly yeah, do. We certainly we, do. We do. And I think you're right. I mean, that sounds like that's the most effective argument. It's like, what does it have to do with us? Yeah. And I think for me, the thing that I think about that's that's kind of a, a spinoff of some of that, but it is kind of a, a slightly different direction is that The society that we have, right, was built by cishet, white, able-bodied folks, right? And like, it was, it was built for a very specific demographic. And when we're talking about assimilation, right, we're like, how can we create, how can we make this system fit and be more inclusive? But it, it was never meant for trans people. It was never meant for autistic and disabled people. It was never meant for black people or other marginalized people. And so what do we actually need to change about larger society to actually be an inclusive place, a place where we can all thrive? And so often we talk about assimilation, how to make small, teeny tiny changes. And those actually aren't liberatory. They're not going to small changes aren't going to help everybody thrive. And so how can we move toward a world and a culture where we can all thrive and be embodied and live the lives that we want and be supported in that in our communities? And that's that's what we need to be talking about. Yeah, I and and I apologize if like the if the term assimilation is I was kind of searching for the right word. I didn't, you know, but you know, in my mind like what I'm thinking of is for instance, you know, when people talk about BLM and they're in disagreement with my view on it, I will generally say, well, look, you know, actually, there's all sorts of debates that we should be having that we're not because you all are so hooked up on this. Like, we should be talking about the fact that facial recognition technology, which seems to be coming, is super racist technology and completely mm-hmm. unfair. So I guess... And transphobic. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's kind of what... And I think I, I phrased it in a poor way. I think what I, no, what I mean okay. is like... Are there things that we can educate people about and say like, hey, instead of all these wedge issue, let's make you afraid things like there are some actual legitimate things that should be discussed that would save people's lives. You you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, trans people are mistreated at work. 
mistreated in housing decisions, you know, uh, public accommodations, like there's plenty of studies about this. So the most striking one that I found, I think was a 2017 study in New York City, right? Liberal New York City, you think like the heart of progressivism, uh, AOC, all of that jazz. And it found that trans women in New York City were something like 68% more likely than the general population to have a bachelor's degree and there's something like 80% more likely to be unemployed. And that was really striking to me because it's like, even in liberal New York City, trans people aren't getting a fair shake. You know, it's like, that's the stuff that I wish we could talk about. You know, certainly the Equality Act that keeps failing to pass the Senate is sort of the biggest thing right now that, that needs to be the biggest priority, but we can't pass it while there's still a filibuster, unfortunately. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show. We tend to close with a segment we call Grab an Oar, which is just an opportunity for our guests to plug a cause or a candidate. You know, we also this year call it Road to the Midterm. So if you choose to plug a candidate, that's fine too. And just to let people know where they can go to, to get involved in something that you care about. So I tee it up to the two of you. Feel free to plug anything you like. Uh, cancel me, daddy. Already plugged. We're going to keep plugging that. <laughs> so feel free to pick a, a cause or something. I think that, you know, if, you, if you've enjoyed this discussion and you want to understand the anti-trans hate movement more, I would definitely go listen to the anti-trans hate machine Translash Media is a, a nonprofit newsroom that does a lot of good work. We also have other podcasts. So I think that that's a really great place to get information and you can also donate. And yeah, I think that, that that's, a, that's a good one from me. And then the Trans Journalist Association, how can people use that resource? How should they use that resource and where can they find it? Yeah, um, we have a style guide and an employer guide on our website, which is transjournalistassociation.com. Trans journalists can apply to get in there. And we also have a donation link. So if you want to support our work, that's how you can do that. Um, I'd, I'd just like to plug the Transgender Education Network of Texas right now. Also, uh, Equality Texas is another organization who are working directly with families and legislators down that way. We always say you put out the house that's on fire before you get to the rest of the neighborhood. And unfortunately, our, our buddies in Texas could use our help right now. So certainly the tent, they call it, Trans, Trans Education Network of Texas and Equality Texas are both doing wonderful work. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks. thank you for having us. It was nice to meet y'all. You too. All right, you can leave us a voicemail. Tell us what you think we got wrong, what you think we got right, that kind of thing. 508-687-2589. You're also welcome to just tell us stuff you'd like to hear us talk about. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Caitlin is at Transcribe. That's T-R-A-N-S-S-C-R-I-B-E on Twitter. Oliver Ash is at Oliver Ash Klein on Twitter. You can find their show, Cancel Me Daddy, wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. I'm Anita Hill. You probably know me, or think you do. In the past 60 years, I've seen massive social gains for women and people of color. I've been at the forefront. Here's the thing. This progress didn't happen by chance. It was made. Made by hard work, sometimes life-threatening work. And it was made by everyday people making everyday choices. But there are still social inequalities that keep me up at night. My new podcast, Getting Even, is about equality and what it takes to get there. We're reflecting on how we looked outside the lines, broke the rules, and forged our own paths to equality. Listen to Getting Even on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen.